live. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Strong Tea. I'm Vicky. And I'm Katie. I'm always going to wait for you to say I'm Vicky. I, I'm just waiting for the day where you just repeat. I just um, hear it in my head. I'm like, I'm Vicky. I'm like, it's not me. It's not my line. <laughs> right, just wait. It's not me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and welcome, everyone. Thank you to, for tuning in to another episode. If you haven't joined us before, what is Strong Tea? Strong Tea is a podcast that myself and Katie put together because we're interested in talking about the things that people should be talking about more. So we're talking about things that people may stick their head in the sand about, be afraid to talk about, things that people might consider taboo or controversial. And we like to bring guests on and talk about their lived experience, talk about them and what they do in order to get that conversation going, in order for it to no longer be taboo, to get the education out there and to get everyone learning about it. In true fashion, at the beginning of Strong Tea, we always find out what our guests are drinking. So Jason, what are you drinking today? Excuse me, I was just closing the window there because where I'm sitting, it's just started uh, a lovely downpour outside and you wouldn't be able to hear me. Uh, oh, I think like any parent out there, I'm drinking a nice, strong coffee. Nice, nice. Burned, my, burned myself to ensure extra strength. Oh, and is it, how do you take it? Is it black? Is it sugar? Is it I'm, I'm a little. I'm, I'm a little weird. I like a lot of milk, basically to the point where it like... It, 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 it it's 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 almost it, it's it's about a 60 40 and uh again my wife just gives my wife just gives me very curious looks every time i do that but i just i no like way. it i like that's, the flavor of both that's yeah. a latte isn't it kind of except i don't do the foam thing i'm, I'm not that uh i'm not that <laughs> capable and, and typically <laughs> and typically in the morning it's a matter of just like dump from one jog dump from the other and ugh, just yeah. give me energy so that's really- what i'm drinking I was reading a tweet though recently from a Canadian that was in London and they were saying, why do you all have milk in your coffee? Why don't you have cream? And I was like, oh, that's the way that it's served, right? So are you more of a milk than a cream guy? Yeah, cream it, Cream starts to taste uh, starts to taste too heavy. It, yeah. I, I don't know the exact word for the flavor. It, it, it's too dairy. Like it's, it's very... Um, it's somewhere between sort of sour cream and plain yogurt, and it makes your coffee taste like that. And that's Ooh. that's just not good for anybody, in my opinion. So, uh, yeah, milk is... Yeah, you have not sold that to me at all. No, <laughs> no, we did have a guy on recently who has um, an issue with his tannins, which makes tea taste like fish water. So... Oh, gosh. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very unhappy for him. Mm. Uh-huh. Katie, what are you drinking? Um, well, seeing as the temperatures dropped a little bit, even though we are in the summer, I've gone for Yorkshire. Oh. It's just a straight up Yorkshire. It's not Yorkshire gold. Straight up Yorkshire. That's fine. That's fine. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm learning to not get as angry. Um, it's still Yorkshire. It's still part of the beloved brand. I know, but I scared off some guests with the whole. Yeah, Jason, have you ever had Yorkshire tea from England? Uh, possibly my, my wife lived in the UK for a couple of years and she has similar strong opinions about some of these things that I just, that just passed. I did, or is it, don't, I mean, you, you can't hit me cause we're on the screen, but is it Earl Grey tea? Is it orange Pico tea? Is it, 
Oh, I don't oh, even know what you're what talking about. What is orange? About. PKT. Oh, no. See, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. I've, I've just alienated my entire audience for this podcast in one go. And we haven't even. Oh, gosh. Okay. We, Anyways. We um, this, this is like a what we call builder's tea. So it's like uh, a strong, common, breakfast. just really good. Yeah. I suppose it's mm. breakfast tea, isn't it? Okay. Yeah. Now, yes. Now. Okay. Yes. So, yes, actually, then I have. Oh, cool. Okay, mm-hmm. we're on an even kill then. I don't have to lose my temper. Hey, we're back, and we're back. And we're yeah. back, we're back. That's cool. And we're now, we're now furiously Googling what orange Pico tea is. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, this has all gone horribly wrong. <laughs> it has, yeah, yeah. We're good. Vicky, what are you drinking? Save us, save us all so, from the conversation. <laughs> so, Yorkshire jam and toast. So, Jason, this is tea that tastes like jam and toast. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I thought I you think... meant you actually had like toast with jam beside your. Oh gosh. Oh no 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 no. This is this is a revolution, my friend. Yeah, this is insane. <laughs> so yeah, see, you blow my world, I blow your world. There we go. Oh, you need to come awesome. to the UK just to try the teas. And yeah. you know what? And well, and I've been many times, and I lived overseas and lived with quite a few different folks from the UK, and I, I love getting their opinions. There's so many like regional opinions and little. A little um like like I don't I don't know what the what the word is um just kind of quirks and eccentricities about some <laughs> of these things that I love learning about it is fantastic uh but I, I've obviously forgotten some of them so <laughs> I do I do need to come back to the UK I love it every time I visit there um, oh, we'll send you some links to some um important research before you come back then yeah, yeah. Specifically, I've been I've been I've been trying to move there as a teacher again in, in the last little while, but uh, the, the visa situation is is more difficult these days, right. and I'm, I'm I'm too old for the youth visa anymore. I'm sorry to say. Oh. Uh, and then uh, yeah, just uh, I mean, because I've been all through Scotland, all through the UK, and just absolutely love all those areas, like both countries. Uh, when I say the UK, that's not correct. I guess Britain, anyway. But uh, I haven't been to Wales or uh, or Ireland yet, but uh, they're they're on the list. So. I can't believe we're turning teachers away. Why are we turning teachers away? What do you teach, Jason? Well, it's not so much that. Well, so I'm uh, at the moment. I teach special. I, I train special education teachers uh, who teach students with learning disabilities, and I train them in a, in a reading program how to how to teach those students to read. Um, it's not even a matter of being turned away. It's 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 more just to do with um, the the logistics and the, and the visas and what's required for schools to sponsor an overseas teacher. Uh, there's a lot of cost and some risk associated with it. So it, it's not the preferred way of hiring for a lot of schools, uh, because right. there's just, there's just risk to it basically. So I, I wouldn't point to any one individual and certainly not to any one school. Um, it's just, yeah, with the, with the visa situation, it requires sponsorship. There's a fair bit of legal work. There's a fair bit of cost and, yeah, it's just one of those situations. I mean, my wife and I both have very good jobs here too, and we do genuinely love Canada as well. So it's, um, in some ways, it's a, it's a it's a good problem to have. But we definitely got the uh, the overseas uh, excitement in us the last time we went, and we'll we'll do it again. And as I said, she lived in the UK for a couple of years, and she's British herself, and so uh, mm. yeah, she uh, she's uh, like her parents still have the United Empire Loyalists uh, certificates from their grandparents up in their house. Wow. So uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so it will never really, uh, it will, it, it, it will never leave us. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And, and then you have a very, very important question. Um, seeing as you live in Canada, do you live somewhere that gets lots of snow? Oh yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Not, not compared to, so we're in Southern Ontario. We're about an hour and a half away from the American border where we live. 
uh, folks who are listening would, I mean, the, the easiest landmark would be Toronto. We're about an hour away from Toronto and then another hour or so from the border. We get, uh, by Canadian standards, we get some snow. If you travel two or three hours north of here, it, it, it's 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 far more. But uh, generally, yeah, we, we have noticeable winters here, absolutely. But again, it's all relative, right? Like Vicky and I were saying before this started that, you know, if, uh, you know, if, if, if the UK struggles a bit more with snow because it's not as common out there, right? Uh, and, and even Canada has those standards, though. If Southern Ontario gets... 30 or 40 centimeters of snow it's it's going to be a big deal you're checking to see if you know you're checking to see where it falls what the road conditions are going to be like that kind of thing if you're out in newfoundland or if you're in northern ontario i mean that's that's a little sprinkling of mm. that's a little sprinkling of uh, of dust <laughs> you know it's kind of like hey great okay what else any more exciting 40 news centimeters. So. we get like five centimeters it's like guys shut down the country no day. <laughs> yeah no 30 centimeters you're like yep okay and then you'll you will get somewhere you'll get you'll get to, you you can get two or three feet in one big dumping but that doesn't uh, tend to happen as much here but further north um further north as i say it's it's old news <laughs> Oh, that's crazy. I tell you what, if you did come and teach here, you get loads of snow days off just for the most minute amount of snow. It'd be amazing. <laughs> anyway, I'm um, going to introduce you because otherwise I could talk about Canada and yeah. and all sorts of loveliness all oh, day. I forgot what we're here to talk about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, guys, I get the job today of introducing our fantastic guests. Um, and we have got the wonderful Jason Adams with us now. Jason is a husband, he is a dad of twins, and he is author of the book OCD Dad, which is OC Dad. I never know how to say it, but it's learning to be a parent with mental health disorder. He is a musician um, and he's a self-confessed guy who tries to help other people through with OCD, sharing his experiences and doing what he can to uh, speak the good voice, if you like. and I'm reading a bio that I found of you online. It says he lives in a very asymmetrical house with his wife and twin boys in Ontario, Canada. Is it true? Is your house asymmetrical? Oh gosh, yeah. That, that that's a little uh, that's a little tongue in cheek snub to 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 uh, <laughs> symmetry OCD. Put it in writing and say that yeah. I mean, hey, take that OCD. I live in an asymmetrical house. Yeah, our house. We we love our house. It's it's over a hundred years old. It's got lots of character. It's been fixed up a couple of times. But in a house this age, nothing is square or plumb or symmetrical anymore, right? <laughs> and uh, but that's part of uh, that's part of what we like about it. It's still safe, but it's it's quirky. Charm, plenty of charm. Exactly. <laughs> well, Jason, we can't thank you enough for being here today to talk about something which um, we try and talk about: lots of mental health uh, disorders, mental illness, just to open up. And remove the stigma. Um, and this is no exception. Um, we, we're here today to talk to you about your OCD. So can you, uh, in your own words, tell us your story? Sure. So yeah, my wife and I got married in, uh, so again, I'm from Southern Ontario. Uh, my wife and I got married in 2015. Uh, and then in 2019, uh, we had our, uh, our twin boys. And it's interesting. Like I, I would say that uh, as far as my, my my journey with OCD specifically, you know, that didn't start until after my boys were born. But as I'm sure some of your listeners will know, once you start therapy for a particular mental health disorder, you start to have a lot of retrospective moments where you're going, oh, I might have done that because of this. I might have 
I, I might have thought this way because of this. And so I would say, OC, you know, OCD tendencies have been a lifelong thing. But uh, my diagnosis journey didn't really begin until my boys were born. So, yeah, they were born in July of 2019. And shortly after we brought them home, and we uh, I should mention, too, just for our parents, I mean, we were very lucky. Um, our boys were born happy and healthy. And that's something we've been uh, very blessed with. And, you know, from the perspective of, of parenting. I, I mentioned that now and I'll bring it up later for a couple of reasons, but I do just want to mention that. Uh, but yeah, when we brought them home, um, I just noticed my mental health was becoming tumultuous. I was struggling to sleep. I was struggling to relax uh, for a number of reasons, but largely focused around anything to do with the care and safety of my kids and anything that I thought was affecting the safety of my kids. So I was unable to sleep if I didn't check their breathing a certain number of times in a certain series of ways. Uh, I was, you know, I would freak out anytime I thought someone wasn't holding them correctly. I would struggle to carry them down the stairs because I would have visions of my knee popping out and dropping them. I couldn't have them near heights of any kind because I was picturing them falling, like not me dropping them, but just them falling and it got to the point where I was losing sleep, I was losing emotional stability, and I, uh, I the situation was getting very unpleasant. So I eventually went to uh, a really good therapist uh, in the area and poured all this out to him. And he kind of sat there, nodded and nodded and listened. And then, and then he said to me, yep, okay, took out a post-it note, wrote a book on it book title handed it to me and said read this come back next week and it was uh overcoming ocd by dr jonathan abramowitz which uh i would highly recommend to anybody by the way but i kind of looked at that and went what are you talking about i ocd and, and then as i started to read the book i went oh my gosh i can remember writing in the margins like yes this all finally makes sense a little while after that uh worked with another clinic that confirmed my diagnosis uh, participated in a group therapy program and then ongoing therapy with uh, my original therapist and that brought symptoms under control which was fantastic uh at least in the general sense of ocd and then the the addition to my story there is i kept looking for resources that talked about ocd specifically in the context of being a parent so there are plenty of resources out there when your child has ocd when you're parenting someone or caring for someone with ocd i couldn't find anything to do with actually being a parent with ocd other than some some articles online and what i had noticed as i looked back through my therapy notes was that i had been collecting strategies and adapting them so i would look in you know this textbook says i can do this for my ocd and then you know i, I had been figuring out ways to adapt them to to the obsessions and compulsions centered around my kids and i thought well i can't be the only one in this situation this resource isn't out there yet so why don't i try putting it together and this was also during the time when COVID was raging and things were going a bit nuts. And that became a, a, a really helpful vent, a really helpful avenue for a lot of a lot of that stress and a lot of the OCD tendencies that I couldn't just lump into one particular textbook. So fast forward uh, about a year and a half and the book has come to fruition and having cool conversations about it and things are better. So, yeah, that's my story. <laughs> for those who don't know, what is OCD? Because you, you, you were really generous and gave us a sneaky peek of your book which we'll talk about in a little bit and it is complex there were obviously multiple things that are umbrellaed under OCD but so so for our listeners can you break that down and, and tell us what it is 
Sure, sure. So, uh, and again, I, I always preface this. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. So I'm going to be giving my interpretation, which is a combination of scientific research and personal experience. I define OCD as a maladaptive cycle of behaviors related to threat and response. Okay. So everybody has a system for recognizing and mitigating threats. The example I always use is this. Say you're cooking chicken in the kitchen. You take it out of the package. You put the you put the chicken breast on the cutting board and some of the chicken juice leaks off onto your counter. Very common thing. We all know chicken juice is unsafe if left unattended. So you have a mechanism in your brain that says, hey, there's bacteria in that chicken juice. You need to clean it up. Then the emotional response center says, yep, threat. You need to make sure you clean that up. And then there's the action part of your brain that prompts you to go get the cleaner, go get the cloth, spray, wipe, clean it up, done. And generally speaking, in a neurotypical person, after you've completed those cycles, emotional center will calm down, threat center will calm down, threat's been neutralized, back to your normal day. For somebody with OCD, that cycle gets interrupted. So it will say, all right, I've cleaned the chicken juice, it's safe. The threat response doesn't stop. The threat response says, but the bacteria could still be there. And then there's part of you going, well, no, it's not. I, I, I just, I just neutralized it. Yeah, but it could still be there. No, I just neutralized it. Could still be there. No, yes, no, yes, no, yes. <laughs> and eventually that cycle um, can get so strong that you feel that you feel compelled to repetitive actions to neutralize it. So, in clinical terminology, what we're talking about there is an intrusive thought. Okay, so you say that bacteria could still be there. It could infect you. It could infect your children. Your children could get a serious illness as a result of that. And that leads to an unwanted thought. So it could be some, you know, picturing your children in the hospital, picturing your children dying, picturing a spouse throwing up over the toilet because you're so scared that they're going to get sick. And so, so, so you get that intrusive thought, you, you get those obsessions over it. And then that leads to the only thing you can do to relieve it in that situation, which is compulsions and compulsions are repetitive actions designed to neutralize a threat real or perceived. And in that particular case, the compulsion might be just the repetitive washing of the area. And it might have to be done say a certain number of times. Um, in other cases, it can be something a lot more abstract that only makes sense to the person. So for example, um, you might have a situation where you're walking, say, for example, into a shopping mall and you open a door and you walk through the door frame. And as you're walking through that, you have an intrusive thought about punching the old lady who just walked through the door on the other side of you. And you think to yourself, oh, my gosh, that's a potential threat. I, I, I could be a violent person. I have to neutralize this. I have to make sure it didn't happen. Again, you have that threat response, threat response. So then you might have to go back out the door and walk through it with just a clean mind and no intrusive thoughts going through your head, no obsessions going through your head in order to neutralize that and make the universe okay again, and thereby proving that you're not a violent sociopath, right? So what you can see in both those examples is that maladaptive process of threat intrusive thought that comes up threat real or perceived intrusive thought and then compulsion to relieve it and the compulsions come about because the typical response to relieve that threat is not enough and that's one thing that's really important for people to understand is that the repetitive motion comes in because that threat response does not shut down no matter what you do and again, it can be through something tangible like chicken juice on a counter, but it can also be thoughts that don't feel right, words that don't feel like, right, religious omens, contamination, symmetry, any number of things.
It's one thing so, you mentioned. Yeah, that's... <laughs> uh, so that's a really interesting way of putting it. And the, the the chicken juice example is really like say tangible for people to be able to understand what it's what it's mm-hmm. like. Um, you mentioned there a couple of times the phrase intrusive thoughts, mm. um, and you talked about when you brought your children home the thoughts that started to creep in you know the and mm-hmm. it's funny you talk about the things that you thought about and I'm thinking I've thought those things you know when you're walking down the stairs oh my god what if I fall oh my god I'm at a height what if what if the baby falls you know it's there's a lot of those intrusive thoughts that come through for new parents so how did you decipher that these weren't just normal thoughts of a new parent in that sort of panicky sort of state of anxiety of I've just bought these these tiny babies home oh my god they're now my responsibility you know did you talk to your wife about it did you sort of say I'm not sure what is happening do you feel like this so that that's a really good question and 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 that's a very common question that that I get and um, I will mention as well I, I have a blog on my website uh, theocdad.ca and there is one there's a little tool on there just one that I made uh, uh, that helps people uh, it's just a little worksheet for going through the process that I'm about to describe. So if anybody wants to be able to try it after listening to this. So you're absolutely right that uh, there are a lot of anxieties and worries that come when you first bring kids home. The, the the key factor is the amount of time, energy, and, and energy, physical energy and emotional energy that those thoughts and your responses to them are taking up. Okay, so for example, it's very normal for parents to want to sort of check their child's onesie, make sure they're sleeping on their back or any number of safety checks that we have when we put them down into cribs. You know, we don't want bumpers along there. We want to make sure there's nothing else in the crib. It's very normal to check that before they go to bed. In my case, it was three different breathing checks that had to be done a certain number of times. So I would gently put my hand on their chest to make sure I could feel it rising and falling. I'd put my ear over their mouth and I'd put my hand over their mouth to make sure I could actually feel a little bit of breath coming out. Okay. And I'd have to do that a certain number of times. If I didn't do that, I couldn't fall asleep for at least an hour or two, basically until I was exhausted of the cycle. Okay. So on the one end, you have somebody doing one or two checks to make sure the child is safe. And then on the other end, you have me doing multiple checks, several of which are just completely unnecessary, and then losing an hour or two of sleep because I'm still worrying about it even after I did those checks. Right. So again, you get the intrusive thought of your child suffocating in their sleep. You get this obsessive cycle where you can't stop thinking about it. You're feeling that threat response, you know, try to neutralize the threat response, try to neutralize it. And you have that ongoing, unwanted, intrusive thought of uh, your child suffocating in their sleep. And then you're, you're doing everything you can to neutralize it eventually until you just get so exhausted that you fall asleep. That's an example of an unhealthy, maladaptive response, right? It's not functional. It's not useful. And it's not sustainable either. So what I always say to people who ask is... It's very normal to feel anxious. It's very normal to do a few checks. However, you have to pay attention to the amount of time. And that might actually mean like (laughs) using a stopwatch to gauge yourself and trying to quantify the physical and emotional energy that you're using to neutralize that worry. Because there is a tipping point where it becomes unsustainable and just not helpful. Sounds like being a parent or becoming a parent triggered more things and in your book you're really open about the question of did your kids give you OCD Mm -hmm. and obviously being being parents it comes along with a plethora of worries and additional things but could you talk to us about that and you know what causes OCD 
Yeah, that's good. So, and I'll say right away, uh, no, my kids did not give me OCD. And I mentioned that in the book. Uh, they 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 did not. Uh, so what causes OCD? Yeah, that's that, that question is still being researched. The, the consensus that I've been able to find so far is that it's a combination of some wiring already being in place. So some tendencies being kind of born in. There are some genetic factors where you are predisposed to just being a bit more a bit more neurotic and I don't mean that in an insulting sense I just mean in the sense of like um having a a, a bit stronger sense of control over small details uh maybe being a little bit more cognitively inflexible so you know you can be prone to to rigid thinking black and white thinking about situations things like that and then typically there are uh what we call onset incidents okay so that can be a trauma of a particular kind it can be an incident where um could be that you get really sick. It could be trauma in the home. It could be a loss of some kind. It can also be a time of significant change or stress in your life. And this change could be positive too. So things like going through a divorce, uh, loss of a loved one, um, having kids, you know, different things like that. And those things essentially trigger those responses. They, 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 they set off that network. OCD is typically uh, very individualized in this one. And it's often very ego dystonic, which means that it focuses very carefully, the, te- the the obsessions and compulsions and intrusive thoughts focus very carefully on things that are valuable to you, things that are important to you. And so, you know, and when, and when I look back at my obsessions and compulsions, especially around my kids, one of them, for example, I mean, first of all, it's focused on my kids, which is, you know, one of the most important things in my life. But a lot of the things that I uh, found my obsessions and compulsions focusing on was, for example, one of them was a lot around water and around baths and around drowning. Well, I mean, I'm a lifelong swimmer. I was a lifeguard for 12 years. So it's easy to sort of put the pieces together as to where those particular thoughts come from. Right. So in terms of what causes it, as I say, like it's um, the general notion is that there are some people that are just wired for it a little more than others. And again, there's usually an onset incident of some kind or more than one. Uh, and, and and then that can lead to either chronic symptoms or it can be kind of very acute situational, which, you know, might then lead to an ongoing chronic situation if it's not addressed properly. You talked at the start of this episode um, after we got over the tea and snow chat. Um... <laughs> I'm, I'm still upset, by the way. Yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you talk and you sort of use the phrase everything great now. You know, for a lot of people um listening to this and wondering about how OCD works in the long term, mm. how does it impact your parenting and your family life now? Do you get flare-ups? Is it something you have to manage daily? Do you still go to therapy? You know, is this an ongoing thing for you? Or once once you've confronted it, you know it's all great, which we know that's not the thing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, and, 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 you know, you're absolutely right. I, sh- I should qualify that statement a little bit. It, uh, so there, there's a few things there. Now I, I, I don't go to regular therapy at the moment. Uh, that was a decision that my therapist and I made together. Uh, I still have an ongoing relationship with him and like, an, and we still were at the point of kind of six month check-ins right now of sort of how are things going? Uh, how does it impact my daily life? And uh, I would say the, the, the first thing 
first and foremost is physical and emotional energy. When you are managing a mental health disorder day in and day out, it is physically and emotionally draining, regardless of whether you're around your family or not. And that leads to less gas in the tank for your family. And that was one of the big motivators for me in in going to therapy was to get some of that energy back. And again, that goes back to how do I know the difference between normal parenting worries and acute mental health symptoms? One of the big things is, you know, can you quantify your energy level at the end of the day? And for me, for a long time, that was very, very low. And so that led to less patience with the kids, less happy interactions in general with my wife, whether it was just conversations, date nights, uh, even just talking about logistics and things like that. Uh, for a long time, it led to very rigid behaviors around just risk taking. So letting my boys go on climbers, letting them take risks, even just around little shallow bits of water, even when we were supervising them. Well, we always supervised them around water, but just despite the fact that we were there, still just being very rigid about that. Um, and again, I mentioned having less patience for just the typical frustration. So they cry, they whine, they bicker, things like that. It's very easy to get overtired and impatient with things like that. Uh, as far as things now, I, I would say from my experience, it never totally goes away. And I think that that is a misconception of therapy in general. I don't have any other mental health disorders that I know of, so I can't speak intelligently about what how those symptoms progress over time. But the term that I always use with people is a harm reduction model. Okay, so when you talk about being in therapy for OCD, you are not talking about flicking a switch and then suddenly never dealing with another obsession or compulsion again. You're talking about harm reduction. One of the ways that I would describe it is having, you know, moving your OCD from a strong, powerful voice right at the forefront of your attention to kind of being like a house fly in the background where you're kind of just like ah, ah, swatting it, like getting it away. It, it, it It's not going to impact your your life significantly, but it's, it's going to be there and it's going to be kind of annoying. And when you're really tired or you're going through a difficult stretch, it, 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 it it's going to be even more annoying and more noticeable, but you get to a point where you can differentiate between your intrusive thoughts, between the maladaptive symptoms and your typical everyday thoughts. And if you can recognize them, they lose a lot of their power. You can let them do what they're going to do, and then they're going to go away. So as far as my day-to-day -day life now, I still absolutely have some overtired times as a result. There are times where I'll say to my wife, like, I need a break. I'm going upstairs and, and, and I'll lay in silence for half an hour. There are still times where I would, where I will journal out intrusive thoughts. Uh, the, the big difference for me now is that I, most of the time when it comes up, I can say, Oh, there it is. Like, I know what it feels like in my head. I know what it feels like in my body. I've watched those thoughts come up and go away. I've done a fair bit of exposure with response prevention training. I can let them subside. And generally speaking, they don't interfere with day-to-day -day life. The other thing that I do sometimes is I will intentionally prepare for situations where I know I might be triggered. So for example, my boys are in swimming lessons now. Uh, I, I foolishly did not do any journaling or imaginary exposures before their first swimming lesson. And it was not fun it was it was really difficult watching them be in someone else's hands in the water knowing that i mean sure i could jump in if i had to but it was intrusive thoughts and physical tension and anxiety and swearing under my breath the whole lesson long <laughs> so you still get incidents like that that do come up the difference now though is that i have strategies i can go home i can do an imaginary exposure about it i can talk to my wife about it and if need be we can accommodate where they'll say hey you're going to take them to swimming lessons. 
we didn't get to that point. I still take them to swimming lessons, but absolutely that's something where I'm still taking steps to manage it. Yeah. I think the key word that I think came out with our initial chat as well before we we came to record this episode was that uh, it's very peak it's debilitating Mm. and you know we talked about things like you could be driving along and the intrusive thought is you've hit someone so you've kind Mm. of got to come back and and check and double check and double check yes I mean some people might find that incomprehensible other things like turning a light switch on five times people might find humorous why is ocd so misunderstood and because it's not a funny thing it's debilitating so why is it so misunderstood because me and katie have often said people who say oh i'm a little ocd but you're not (laughs) you're not you've just you know you've just done something a bit repetitively it's not ocd Mm. Or people say it about cleaning, don't they? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's offensive, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's and it's funny because I can look back now, again, when my therapist first told me, well, first diagnosed me with OCD, I, I knew as much about it as anybody else. And and I can recall times, you know, pre-diagnosis when I would have made uh when I would have made similar jokes. So I mean uh i I, th- I think it's good to correct that and at the same time i can i can empathize with it because i've been in that place and i'm talking about and i'm talking as somebody with ocd uh but why is it so misunderstood i think there's a couple of reasons uh one is that again th- those neuroticisms that you're talking about so symmetry cleaning things like that those all exist on a spectrum right and so people can relate to little things just not feeling right um even something as simple as when somebody says the word moist sorry if there's any listeners out there who don't like it but when they hear that word something just doesn't feel right and, and you kind of go ah that and and you might say well what, what's wrong with that it, it's a word it, it it ignore it if it doesn't make you feel right whatever uh so i think sometimes in people's attempts to relate to what you're describing something like that will come up and if that's the only example that people can relate to, then it's 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 very hard to it's very hard to implant my experience into somebody else's mind. And that's one of the reasons why I try and talk about very common day to day things. I think the other thing is that uh, what I mentioned before, where you know those unwanted intrusive thoughts are ego dystonic; they relate to individuals. It's not as if I can say this is the one quintessential OCD thought that everybody has. Some people have. Um, some people have trouble with intrusive thoughts related to religion and scrupulosity. Some people have it related to contamination. Some people have it to symmetry and some people have it to kind of like what we call magical thinking or like the just not right feeling. There's something that just does not feel right about this. And that can be hard to, that can be hard for people to relate. That can be really hard for people to relate to. This just doesn't feel right. I'm scared this is going to happen. What what do you mean? That's obviously not the case. Well, you know, those those conversations can go back and forth um, a lot. I certainly think popular media portrayals don't always help. Again, there, it's a lot like, um, you know, when the Sherlock Holmes series with Benedict Cumberbatch came out, a lot of people said, oh, this is going to be great for showing what people on the autism spectrum are like. And it's like, well, again, you know, it's it's a, it's a few qualities somewhat overemphasized, and you have to understand that those qualities exist on a spectrum, and that one TV show is not showing the full picture. So those those portrayals, I, they might start conversations, but they certainly don't tell the whole story, right? And so, as far as why it's 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 misunderstood, 
the, the, those things don't help. And then the other thing for me is that it's hard for people to imagine how that cycle can become debilitating. It's hard for people to imagine how thoughts can become so powerful, like to the point that thoughts affect physical action. So another example for me would be, it would sometimes take me 15, 20 minutes to leave for work because I would lock my door. I would get into the car, I would start the car and I'd have an intrusive thought about somebody breaking in or a house fire starting to the point where I could picture the flashing lights on the fire truck. I could see the police caution tape around my house and picture the charred frame of my house or picture writing the police report, doing an interview with a police officer, right? So there's that unwanted intrusive thought, which leads to an obsession, which then leads to a compulsion, right? That's the cycle of OCD. And so I'd have to turn my car off, get back out and lock the door. And for me, that would repeat six, seven times. In extreme cases, that can repeat to the point where you can't even go into work because, you know, you'll hear stories of people, for example, they'll take a video of them actually locking their front door, sending that to a friend and saying, did you actually see me lock the door? And the friend will text back, yes. And then they go on from there, right? I mean, those are some more extreme examples. It's hard for people to imagine getting to that extreme. And understanding how powerful that feels. And to a certain extent, you don't want people to feel that because you don't want everybody facing that level of difficulty with it, right? But uh, that's the other thing is that the extremes are very difficult to put yourself into. And that's why it's important that we talk about it like this and give real life tangible examples, especially in the world of parenting. You talked um, a couple of points there about um, the, the fact that after your diagnosis, you tried to do a lot of reading specifically mm. relating to OCD in parenting. Mm -hmm. And you said, since you've written your book, it's opened up a lot of conversations. So mm -hmm. I guess my question is, what have you learned since your diagnosis and treatment? And uh, opening up that conversation, you said in your initial chat with us, you've spoken to a lot of different people who contacted you since you've written your book. Mm -hmm. Are you finding a lot of people with a lot of different experiences is it a very varied condition yeah you know what's interesting so so there's two things there the the first thing that i've been surprised by is the the range of just demographics so across age culture gender um education careers you know, like I'll, I'll talk to 60 year old white male lawyers and I'll talk to and I'll talk to people from um, people from, you know, people from the, the United States, people from overseas. Um, again, like across all across all cultures, across all genders, across all age groups, uh, I've been surprised by how diverse that is, basically. Um in terms of how varied a condition it is, it's been very interesting as well to see the coping mechanisms that people use. I have found there's a certain generational aspect to that. I'm not painting a generation with one brush, but I have found that lots of folks who are a bit older into their 60s and 70s have uh, have said a lot of things along with like, this just wasn't talked about when I was a kid. So I have just learned to deal with it. And this is how I've coped with it. And I'm now confronting all of this, <laughs> uh, you know, much, much later in my life. Uh, and I have found that, uh, again, culture and upbringing. So folks who come up in a very strong religious background, it takes on a completely different dynamic. And again, that's one of the reasons why it can be uh, hard to understand is it goes back to that ego dystonic individualized aspect the the common thread underneath all of it though because again like that's the huge bit of variation the common thread though 
is that maladaptive response of intrusive thought related to something you care about, the obsessions that come as a result, and then the compulsions that you use to try and neutralize all of that. That's the common cycle. And that exists on something that might even just resemble like a superstitious, you know, I have to kind of like flip this switch a few times before I leave the house all the way up to I can't. I can't drive my car because I'm terrified that I'm going to run somebody over, you know? So you, you, ha- that's the, that's the common bit that is, uh, that is similar across every single one of those cases. And that's the part that I would really encourage people to focus on is that, uh, you know, you w- once you see that pattern, you'll see that actually as varied as OCD can be, it's that cycle that presents in a varied way. It's not that there's a whole bunch of different cycles, <laughs> You know, yeah. d- d- does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, total yeah. sense. Carrying on from that, and that neatly goes into to my question, where in your book you mention about uh, labels and the danger mm. of self-labeling or mislabeling. Mm. Can you talk to us about that, particularly in relation to OCD? Yeah, so that's, and again, it, it, it does segue really nicely because the danger with that, that I noticed with, with self-labeling and mislabeling is, is, is you want to get a neutral opinion on that spectrum of your symptoms, right? You, you, you want to talk to somebody who spends all their time studying the brain and studying human behavior to know what is functional and what's not. I, I hesitate to use the word normal because I think that's a subjective term, but I do think there is, there's a more universal definition of functional that we can talk about. And again, it, it can be relative to individuals, but I, I define that as being able to, mostly do what you want, when you want, with who you want, right? Again, subject to the limitations that we all have, of course. I'm not saying that somebody can just go off and do whatever they want all day. We all have obligations and things. But uh, to function in our lives, you know, we ideally want, you know, a, a friend circle that we want, a job that we want, a place to live where we want, and a certain a, a certain element of freedom. With the mislabeling part, what happens is if you don't have a clear sense of this is functional, this is not, there's a few things. You can become resistant to treatment when you might need it. Uh, your self-esteem and your self-image can become very distorted if you have a misunderstanding. The other thing is that we're not very good at being objective with ourselves, right? And and I say we, I mean, I, I certainly know that to be true from my own experience. I know in my uh, therapy groups, that's come up a lot. And there's there's lots of psychological research out there. There's some in popular literature, there's some in scientific circles, but we have a very hard time being objective. And therapists are generally very good at that. And that's one thing that, um, going to a therapist can be really helpful for. Yeah, but so the, the biggest danger that I see with mislabeling is, again, your the, the threat to your self-image and the threat to like accessing treatment, uh, both in the sense of you might resist treatment when you actually need it, which can be a big thing. And you might you might interpret descriptors as 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 something that feels more, catastrophic or feel feels more debilitating than it than it has to be and so when people say well does that mean i shouldn't do any reading at all say well no 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 no, absolutely not of course i mean you're you 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 want to spend time reading because to me that gives you the that gives you the theory behind the practice that gives you that gives you your base understanding so that when you go to talk to an expert or you get into community groups, you can kind of say, oh, so that's what that means. And here's how I interpreted this. You don't want to be starting from a blank slate. And as I say, like Overcoming OCD by John Abramowitz, that book was revolutionary for me. It was absolutely fantastic. Uh, so I certainly recommend that. But my big thing is 
you know, there, are, there, there really aren't any other serious conditions, be it physical or mental, that we would be expected to treat by ourselves. And it's important to realize that OCD is nothing new. There are people who have spent their whole life studying it. And psychologists and psychiatrists spend their entire working lives studying the brain and studying human behavior. And they have data on what is functional and what is not. And it's, it's, it's a good perspective to have. You've obviously touched upon the importance of research and belonging to a community to understand to, to understand OCD better and what mm. that means for you. Mm-hmm. What is the official diagnosis? Is there one? The official diagnosis? For OCD. Um, I'm sorry, just to be clear, what do you mean by the official diagnosis? So, um, so obviously with depression and so on, you can go to the doctors or go to a therapist and they will, you know, you are suffering from right bipolar or depression is there an official diagnosis route or is there you know oh. something formal to say you have ocd right sorry about that okay yeah no okay. uh so that that again is, is a pathway that, that you take so i i can speak to my experience here in canada i don't want to speak to uh other systems in other countries just because i don't have experience with them but my pathway here is uh so first you, you have your family doctor who you can share uh you, you, who you can share these experiences with they can refer you to supports you you don't need at least where i am you don't need a a doctor's note to contact a psychologist uh, but generally speaking to be formally diagnosed here you would speak to a working psychologist who's registered with uh with the college of psychologists and uh the diagnosis process for me is a series of interviews and then a series of um, a series of forms and tests with a, a lot of different rating scales. And what they're doing there is getting you to describe your symptoms, quantify the amount of time, energy, emotional distress, uh, quantify the impact on your life. And they're quantifying are your symptoms um, are your symptoms chronic and clinical, basically. And that means are they ongoing and are they having a regular serious impact on your life? And in those cases, you then can end up with a letter that says that's your diagnosis. And again, it's not something where uh, you kind of carry it around with you. It's more to do with like if you're then looking at a prescription for medication or you want, you know, you're looking at a treatment with your family doctor, you'll get that official information from a psychologist. Sometimes it can just be um, a letter detailing the medical information and their registration number. And then that's how you can end up with your diagnosis. Uh I know in Canada, again, there's kind of, you could be talking, for example, to a therapist who's a social worker, and they might not be able to give you anything medical per se, but you can still, you know, you can still be in a situation where you're, you're quantifying symptoms and, they, and, they, and you are, and you're studying the condition and you might say my symptoms align and I'm treating as if there are situations like that as well, where people say, I don't want to go the formal diagnosis route. I'm just going to identify like, this is what's going on with me and I'm going to treat it that way. That, that, that is a thing as well. In my particular case, I received the diagnosis from my first psychologist. And then I also participated in a, um, a group therapy, a therapy group, pardon me, at an anxiety clinic at a hospital here. And to do that, I had to do um, another diagnosis process through all, through their intake workers to qualify for the program. So I received like a letter of diagnosis from them. Uh, it, it does speak though to a complication of the system, which is that uh, coming to a formal diagnosis is not easy. And I always qualify it by saying, listen, I had therapy in my first language. I come from a family and a culture that accepted it as something to be treated, not as something that was going to have me ostracized or criticized. 
Um, I have the means to do it. Thankfully, like my workplace has strong benefits. I ha- I was able to pay for most of my therapy through benefits. And even then my wife and I decided that that was still going to be a priority in the budget. And we had some money to do that. So we're very, very lucky that way. And then I just even have you know access to the logistics of getting to therapy, be it internet, computer, car, <laughs> you know, the ability to schedule work off for appointments without penalty from work, you know, all those things, right? So you have that pathway to diagnosis and that can open up a lot of options. However, there are those constraints as well, right? And uh, yeah, that's, um, so for me, it was just diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder. And uh, it's kind of went from there. I've got um, quite a big question, so bear with me. Um, No problem. (laughs) um, I'm trying to get a feel for, if people are listening to this or if people are reading your book or looking, looking for an answer, what would you say to the people who think that these intrusive thoughts are becoming too much and that it's not just that sort of normal new parent or indeed just parenting in general, not necessarily new parenting? What would you say are the best resources out there and support networks that people could look for? And secondly, do you think there is enough knowledge out there and enough support for people and I know again you can only speak for Canada but I'm just wondering if if this is a di- a condition which is so varied from what you've talked about with people and how the the general model works very similarly but everyone is different you know is this a condition which is known enough about to provide the support Sorry, that's a really long question. <laughs> that's okay. No, it, 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 no, it's excellent because there's a lot of really important talking points in there. I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to hit them all. Please stop me or let's come back to them if I don't, <laughs> because that's all really important. So the first thing, as far as what should you do if you're worried that something is wrong? Okay. So again, we, we want to be aware that people are coming from all different levels of comfort with this. So I wouldn't say there's you know one you must do. What I'll say is kind of my top three recommended practices, just again, based on my own experience. You know, not a doctor, not a psychologist, but here's what worked well for me. So the first thing for me is embrace the power of writing your thoughts down. And it doesn't have to be something that you show anybody, but take any obtrusive thought, obtrusive, pardon me, intrusive thought that you are struggling to manage that is taking up a lot of time and energy and emotion in your life and write it down, write it out, leave it alone for a couple of days and come back and read it again. There's something very powerful about being able to study your thoughts without thinking them at the same time. That's always the, so if you're thinking, I'm not ready to leave the house about this, I'm not ready to tell anybody, get a piece of lined paper, write it out and tuck it away in a drawer where nobody has to see it. (laughs) That can be a really, really helpful first step. Um, the second step, which I would say is more accessible to folks uh, as far as the treatment side of things is to talk to your family doctor, share what you're talking about with your family doctor. Now, some people don't want to do that when it comes to kids because there's a lot of discomfort with expressing intrusive thoughts about kids because OCD can lead to thoughts of what if I kick my kid down the stairs in a blind rage, for example. You know, what if I leave my kid locked in a hot car? And that can make people very nervous that child services is going to be called after a medical appointment. It's important to understand that medical professionals, 
at least the ones that I've worked with, you know, they, they do and they should understand the difference between being an actual threat to your kids versus suffering physically and emotionally because you're so worried you might cause harm, right? And that is a huge difference that a lot of people need to think about. I'm not worried that I would ever drown my kids. I'm terrified. I was terrified of the fact that my kids might drown. <laughs> and that was leading me to restrict their behavior and leading to arguments with my wife, you know, and all those kinds of things. So the fact that I'm having intrusive thoughts about harm coming to my children does not mean that I'm a threat to my children. So when I tell people, yeah, just go share it with your family doctor. Some people say, nope, I don't want to lose my kids. And it's like, again, you know, and 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 I'm not trying to be a shameless self-promoter, but I talk about that a fair bit in my book. Like there's more in there. Read about that and think about that key difference. The and, and and understand as well that you may choose one or two thoughts that you want to divulge and say, I'm noticing tendencies like this, and then get into the other more difficult stuff later. But a family doctor can be a really good route that way. Um, and then as far as uh other things you can do by yourself, if you have the means and the ability, going straight to a private psychologist is an excellent forum. I, I can't speak enough to the value of therapy. It can be a psychologist, it can be a social worker, but I can't speak enough to the value of therapy. If there are therapy groups in your area, I personally thought that again, for as bad as this sounds, I thought group therapy was something I had to do if I couldn't afford individual therapy. I thought that sort of one-on-one -on -one time was the premium model and the group therapy was just, all right, this is something I'll do. I was completely wrong. I, I benefited so much from seeing so many different people in so many walks of life talk about their condition. It made me understand that I wasn't alone. It showed me some of the universal tendencies. Again, that cycle of intrusive thoughts for one person you know, she was um, she was an HR person and she always had intrusive thoughts around having to fire people because she was getting these visions of them going home and hanging themselves after losing their job. And it made it very difficult for her to do her job again. Intrusive thought, obsession, and then she would have compulsions to manage that. Right. And and I remember thinking like, oh, my gosh, like, OK, there's the exact same cycle, except for me, it's around my babies and for her, it's around HR. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. So group therapy can be a really good thing. And then um, the last thing that I would uh, suggest would be um, there is some really good reading out there. Again, just making sure you're doing the right reading. So Googling OCD will lead to some helpful articles. N not always. Uh, I find, again, um, I've mentioned it a few times, Overcoming OCD by John Abramowitz was a very helpful one. The International OCD Foundation, IOCDF, they're a great advocacy organization. Um, and then again, speaking to professionals in the field, uh speaking to professionals in the field about what resources to tap into is a really good thing as well um and then you you had mentioned something else though <laughs> i'm yeah. certain i missed something <laughs> <laughs> no it was just i mean you kind of answered it in that in what you've said anyway um but my question was do you think there's enough knowledge out yes there? that's the one okay <laughs> do i think there's enough knowledge so the short answer is no Okay, I, I think there is awareness that OCD is a thing. Okay, I, I don't think that there's awareness of the 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 particulars of it. Okay, I know even within my own family, I have lots of people that have been um, very surprised to learn about some of the the specifics of it. And to a certain extent, that's understandable. It's not okay, but it's understandable because unless you've managed the situation directly, it's very hard to relate to. It's not something people just kind of pick up and read for fun or want to learn about for fun. It's not a hobby that people pick up, right? It's uh, 
it, and again, it's something that is portrayed somewhat in popular culture, but that tends to be the extent how people engage with it. So again, one of the reasons with the book uh, that I that I wrote the book is uh, I, I think what's missing is further conversations about the day to day realities of OCD, what it's like to actually live with it, what it's like to manage it, what what does the treatment look like? What does the clinical language actually look like in 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 real day to day life? Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I always talk about. I always talk about some of my my cycles. I mentioned the one uh, with my son's breathing, for example. You know, another one was um, I'm generally okay when it comes to contamination obsessions. I, I I haven't suffered from those as much, but I had terrible ones around my boys when we were first getting into you know diaper changes and everything else. And if if anything from the diaper got on them, um, that led to uh, significant intrusive thoughts about uh, them getting life-threatening illnesses, me being responsible for my kid's death, things like that. And, and that was a particularly hard one because it's not as if I could wash my kid's hands over and over to the point, you know, I I, I couldn't do them harm with that. I, I had to just clean them to a satisfactory extent like any good parent would. And then I had to find ways to manage after that, knowing that my compulsion couldn't, I, I, I couldn't make them my compulsion. <laughs> Right. So that was where I discovered imaginary exposures, for example, which is the process of writing out an intrusive thought and the resulting obsessions and studying the compulsions that you use and learning to, you know, read that situation over and over, study that situation over and over to the point where it becomes comfortable and then boring. And then in real life, the the symptoms appear less and less, the compulsions appear less and less. So, um, you know, all those kinds of things is information that really isn't out there unless you you seek it from the right people in the right places. And that that's the part that I think really is, is missing. Sure. What, uh, one thing we always do with our guests when we're wrapping up the show, which unfortunately we have to do, cause we, I mean, we could, we could literally talk about this for ages cause this is fascinating. Really could, what, yeah. what, what you've gone through. Um, what would you like to say to the listeners? We offer all of our guests something that we call the final sip. Um, and it's your chance to um, leave a final thought or just get something out there that you think is really important. Um, Vicky always says you can do, you can you can relate it to something that you've been talking about or just, you know, like biscuits or snow or whatever. <laughs> but probably for the purposes of this, OCD would be super helpful. Um, so what would you like to leave our listeners with on the final sip? So I will say two things quickly. So the first thing is that to any parent out there who is managing OCD, first thing, make sure, we haven't talked about this as much, but I will mention it, make sure that your partner has a support network as you are managing your treatment and make sure that that support network exists outside of you, whether it's friends, another therapist, a particular family member, whether it's time to do their own research and their own studying, make sure they have a support network because all the effects that OCD and your treatment or whatever else is having on your life is also having an effect on their life. Okay. And that's not in the sense that, you know, you need to feel bad or guilty or or anything like that, but just understand that it does have an impact. And if your partner or whoever it is that you live with, you know, whether you're in extended family household, whether even if you're um, if you're a single parent with a regular with, with a regular support presence in your life, whatever it may be, make sure that they have a support network as well and that they have time to understand the condition outside of their conversations with you, because that is going to allow you both to progress on the journey at uh, you know at the same pace and provide you both with support while you manage it. Um, the second thing I would say 
is for any parents out there, embrace the power and like the very the, the liberating impact of of self study of quantifying your thoughts and feelings and energy. Embrace the power of journaling so that you can study your thoughts without thinking them, and do the very best you can to seek information from people who study this for a living because it will put things in perspective in a way that we simply can't do by ourselves the information and help is out there um, the situation did not cost me my marriage it did not cost me my family it was significant and clinical i had two different professionals tell me so <laughs> but uh you know it, it over the over the process of about two and a half years through the steps that I just mentioned, um, things have gotten better. The condition never fully goes away, but it does become like that pesky housefly with a certain amount of time and effort and discomfort. But again, support your partner as much as you are being supported. Embrace the power of self-study. And to the extent that you can, talk to somebody involved with this because the worst place for all these thoughts to be is in your own head. <laughs> And so I will stop there. <laughs> Jason, we can't thank you enough for coming on and, and sharing your story. And just, I, I have found this absolutely incredible, just so interesting. And I've got a gazillion oh, other questions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but before I completely close, um, OC Dad, learning to be a parent with a mental health disorder. When and where can we get hold of your book? Hey, so, oh, yeah, I've definitely got to mention this part. So, the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, so my website, uh, www.theocdad.ca, so T H E O C D A D.ca. Uh, the book, so there's there's links to my blog and there's a resource page for just all things OCD there. Uh, you'll you'll see those in links. Um, and the book is on all major book retailers. So it's on Amazon, it's on Indigo, it's on uh, Barnes and Noble, a whole bunch of different places like that. So, um, and that's Amazon, uh, Canada, uh, the States and UK, I believe. Um, there's also a contact, uh, there's also a contact link for, to me directly on that website there. So if anything comes up with that, you can always contact me directly. And um, I've also got a link on there to like other podcasts and media that talk about this as well. So that's the best kind of all in one. Brilliant. And of course, we'll be on there as well, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Good Front stuff. page center. Yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming on and yeah, just, just sharing everything and we will make sure we put the links to the book that inspired you to uh, begin your journey and, you know, of, of OCD and to um, links to your page as well. We'll put them all in the bio on our webpage. Oh, wonderful. Absolutely. Okay. Brilliant. No, thanks so much. I really, really appreciate the time. Thanks so no much. No worries. And thank you listeners for tuning in again, or if it's your first time, I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have, go to our website and go to our supporters page and you can buy us a tea or coffee or Prosecco, or G&T, or Tell you what, an orange, sorry? Sorry, for our, for our friends across the pond, Mountain Dew. Mountain oh, Dew. God. Oh, really? Oh, wow. I was going to, you know, sorry, sorry, that was a strong reaction. Uh, no, that was my no, Teddy TV uh, action. That's good. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I, 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 I was actually going to say no. I love. I love. I love like the room temperature English ales. I was just about to say like there's oh, uh, ales, you know, pale ales. Oh, see, yeah. Or, oh, uh, room temperature though. No. Oh, I love, well, 
that, that yeah more so as i but uh more, more so as i've gotten a bit older maybe i'm an old man at the age of 38 i don't know but uh oh do you know what granville uh, island <laughs> pale ales oh, my oh days. yes oh absolutely. my days anyone going to canada granville island pale ales yeah <laughs> there we go that's my that's my yeah. party shot <laughs> drinks anyway. are a hot topic here yeah, yeah. <laughs> We'll, we'll be back for another episode where we can talk yeah. all about drinks. All about drinks, yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you for joining us and all make right. sure you tune in again. So it's right. goodbye from me and it's goodbye from her. <laughs> Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.